0: If Christ has not been raised, then empty too is our preaching. Empty too is our faith. Today we'll look at the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. Hi, I'm Chloe Langer, and this is the Catholic Podcast. I'm joined today by our regular guest, Joe Heschmeyer, who's the author of Shameless Popery. He works for Holy Family School of Faith. So welcome to the show, Joe.
1: Thank you, and happy Easter.
0: Yes, hallelujah.
1: (laughs) It feels slightly mischievous to say it now, because we're actually recording this during Holy Week.
0: Right, before even Holy Thursday. I feel like I'm totally cheating on it. (laughs) But
1: by the time you hear this, it will be liturgically appropriate. That's
0: true. Very good point. And we're not in Mass, so it's, yeah, out of liturgical context, we'll, we'll give ourselves a pass on it. (laughs) So it's Easter. We made it through Lent. We went through our Lenten series. We looked at Christ's passion through the different eyes of characters of the Passion. Easter isn't just one day of celebration in the Catholic Church. Instead, it's 50. We like to party it up. Um, So through the 50 days of Easter, we're going to be doing another series, and we're going to be looking at the physical case for Catholicism.
1: Yeah, Catholicism isn't just, oh, trust us. Like, just, you know, somebody once told me, Like, no, there's actual physical evidence and historical evidence Mm -hmm. and medical evidence. And so there's something very incarnational, very gritty about the fact that this is just like the resurrection is a historical fact. Mm -hmm. And everything surrounding the faith hinges on just historical realities Mm -hmm. that have to be grappled with.
0: So there's no more Easter-appropriate way to start this series than looking at the empty tomb. And so today's episode, we're going to be looking at the physical case for Catholicism through the empty tomb. And there are three takeaways for today's episode. Uh, So the first is that Christ truly lived.
1: Yeah, Jesus is not a myth. This isn't just a fun story the apostles are telling Mm -hmm. around the campfire. Uh,
0: The second takeaway is that Christ truly died.
1: And this is something supported by the medical evidence. We'll get Mm -hmm. more into that.
0: And then finally christ truly rose
1: here you know the empty tomb itself the apostolic witness the resurrection appearances and all of this really serves as a linchpin of our faith catholicism stands for the fact that he truly lived truly died and truly rose again and that's what it's all about
0: all right let's get to it part one the case against the resurrection
1: so if you're going to say that the christian account of the resurrection is ridiculous if you're going to say it's not true It seems incumbent to have some sort of explanation to say what you think did happen. So, Chloe, what are some of the ways that people address this?
0: So, the first theory is that Christ didn't really exist and the crucifixion never really happened.
1: So, this would be something like Christianity is just a myth, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing.
0: Yep. The second theory, those who say Christ didn't really die...
1: So, like the swoon theory, he, he appeared to die on the cross, mm-hmm. Christ really lived, he was really crucified, but he didn't actually die.
0: And the third theory is that Christ did die, but his body was still in the tomb.
1: So this would be the apostles hallucinated the resurrection, the apostles lied about the resurrection, they put him in the wrong tomb, and so they thought there was an empty tomb, but they mm-hmm. just had the wrong place, but his body remained in, in the tomb after Easter.
0: And then the final theory is that Christ died, and there is an empty tomb, but it's not because Christ rose from the dead.
1: So this would be, so Crossan has a theory that dogs ate the body of Christ. Uh, it could also be the apostles stole the body, mm-hmm. but this would say, yes, Christ really did die. Yes, the tomb really was empty on Easter morning, or at least shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. but this wasn't because he rose from the dead. Right. So let's consider how to answer each of those objections.
0: Part two. Truly lived. A 2010 Barna poll showed that only 42% of Americans said the meaning of Easter was Jesus' resurrection. And just 2% of them identified it as the most important holiday of their faith. Why is it so important to realize the importance of the resurrection and see it as more than just a symbol?
1: So in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, St. Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So when we're talking about this, the whole idea that Christianity is a myth, whether that's that the resurrection is a myth Mm -hmm. or whether it's that Christ's entire life is just like a a myth, a a tale. He's a Johnny Appleseed kind of figure. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to realize that's not how the New Testament presents it. That the New Testament does not intend to be read um, as a mythical account. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of places in Scripture where that's very clear. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm not saying is... Because they say it's true, it's true. Right. I am saying that realize that if you're going to say, oh, it's a myth, that you're saying, don't take this the way they tell you to take it. It actually is supposed to be taken this, this totally different way, even when they regularly deny that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Bible itself doesn't view itself as a myth, like you just said. The apostles and the writers of scripture aren't setting out to tell this fantastic fairy tale. What evidence from scripture do we have to believe this?
1: Well, one easy place to look would be 2 Peter uh, 1, 16, where Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's very much like the one sentence kind of framework. Yeah. Because, and you see this over and over again, John talks about being an eyewitness to the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, no, like we're not just telling you these beautiful stories we're telling you these are things we actually saw happen. Now, you can still say, well, I think they're lying. Mm-hmm. But you can't say, I think they're intending to tell a myth. Right. Or intending to tell a parable or something like Because the context of the writing is just not that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful, too, to see writers of, of scripture to know that, that would that would be something that people may mistake it for. Um, and to, to warn them ahead and in, in advance, and have the wisdom to know that that would be an issue for human human readers.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is yeah. one of the reasons for that. But also, I mean, they, they recognize that this story, in some ways, sounds mm-hmm. too fantastical, too good to be true. Mm-hmm. I believe it's Chesterton. He has this great point where he says, you know, we look at the uh, people in the first century and he said, they're so credulous, they're so willing to believe anything. Mm-hmm. Well, look at early Judaism, or I'm sorry, Judaism like at this period, like in the first century and the centuries immediately before it. They don't have, if you look from like second century BC to first century AD Judaism, Mm -hmm. it's not a particularly fantastical kind of religion. After that, after the resurrection, people are much more willing to believe accounts of miracles and sometimes it makes them too credible. But Chesterton says, what event was it that made these people suddenly willing to believe anything can happen? Yeah. And he says, it seems to be the resurrection itself. This is a real turning point. People are much more willing to believe in the supernatural after they say, oh, okay, like this happened. But when we say, oh, of course they believed it, they're so ready to believe that. We're getting cause and effect completely reversed Mm -hmm. there.
0: Mm -hmm. The dating of the New Testament, um, that always involves a certain amount of guesswork that as archaeology has advanced, so too, with certainty, can we date the books of the Bible. So what do we know about when the Bible was written, and what does that tell us about the resurrection?
1: Yeah, so we know that, so there was a big movement, I should say, back in like the 19th century, to say many of these texts probably date to like the 2nd century, and they had them dated really late. Mm-hmm. Even among skeptical scholars, other than those who just flatly refused to accept the possibility of early dating, there's really good evidence for early dating. So even people who are by no means Orthodox Christians
2: mm-hmm.
1: are saying, yeah, okay, these texts do seem to go back as long ago as they claim to. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some physical evidence for this. Uh, for example, what's called the uh, Ryland's Papyrus 457. It's a scrap of papyrus uh, with a chunk of John's Gospel, John 18:28 to 38. Okay. And it appears to be dated to about between 100 and 150 A.D., that doesn't mean John wrote it. Right. That means one of the copies of his gospel mm-hmm. dates back that long. So if you were rummaging through, you know, let's say your, your grandma's attic or something, and you found like a 1954 edition of a book that you had thought didn't come out until 1970, yeah. you'd have to revise your theory, right? right? right. Um, before this episode, we were looking at uh, a Fulton Sheen article on a, mm-hmm. a Catholic website, and the website had dated in 2016 because that's when they published it. <laughs> yep, yep. But if you were to then say, oh, Fulton Sheen actually died well before that, and here's a copy of that same talk right. from like 1950, mm-hmm. you'd say, oh, okay, our dates were, were too late. Right. And that's how it is here. When you have the Rylands papyrus dating back to the 2nd century, it's in Egypt. This is relevant for a couple of reasons. Uh, a lot of the papyri that we have are from Egypt because Egypt is a dry climate. Right. And so it doesn't have moisture. Moisture destroys paper. Mm -hmm. It destroys documents. And so it destroys papyri as well. And so these caves in places like Judea and in places like Egypt Mm -hmm. will often find these these ancient documents. That's the whole story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. It's also the story of of the Rylands of Papyrus. That doesn't, no one is claiming John wrote the gospel in Egypt.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So the fact that by no later than 100 to 150, you have enough copies of John's gospel circulating in Egypt. That's going to be a very early date. Well, the other thing is that, by all accounts, John is the last of the evangelists to write. This is one of the last books Mm -hmm. of the New Testament. Some have argued it is the last book of the New Testament. John is clearly aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's writing after them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Or almost certainly writing after Paul. And so the very last stage of the game happens early enough that it spread to Egypt by this early date. So all of it, you have to just say, okay, that point happened no later than the first century. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: How much earlier? So we're going back to the early to mid first century for, for these documents. Right. And there's good evidence that before there's a written accounts of Christianity, mm-hmm. there are oral accounts of Christianity. Right. They refer to this in the New Testament. And so, like, for example, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me, Tried an orally account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, what's he saying? He's saying there's a process where you have these eyewitnesses who are giving testimony to this. Then you have a series of people writing them down, and then Luke finds himself partway through that process saying, I've also decided to do this, mm-hmm. uh, to have a more comprehensive account. Because it seems like these earlier accounts probably were sort of piecemeal, they might cover one particular aspect. But they're not trying to cover the whole public ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So you've got John building on the synoptics, building on Paul. And then there are probably these very early written accounts that are just kind of partial, which Mm -hmm. are all building off of this oral proclamation, which would be going on in the first century itself. So that's important for a lot of reasons. Because it means that they can't just be making this up out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. If you started just telling a fantastical version of 21st century America, if you said, you know, in 2006, this crazy thing happened, Mm -hmm. people would be like, no, it didn't. We remember 2006. Or even if you were saying in 1970, there Mm -hmm. are enough people alive who were adults who could say it did not happen that way.
0: Like right. Easily disproved.
1: It's easily disproved. So the first century origins of the text points to the fact that the, the apostles and the evangelists cannot just be making this whole movement up mm-hmm. out of whole cloth because there would be enough people alive to say this did or this didn't happen. Right.
0: So the writers of scripture are writing this account of the resurrection and the life after Christ has risen as history, they wouldn't have been able to get away with this due to the fact that if it was a myth because people were alive at that time who would have been eyewitnesses of the resurrection and they wouldn't have been able to make it up without being called out. Part three, truly died. There's a pretty good indication of credibility found in scripture. And this doesn't, by the way, rely on you assuming that the Bible is scripture and therefore inspired, just that you approach it as you would any other historical text, since it's clearly arguing for what were then recent historical events, and it's not telling some long-ago legend. But apply this to the evidence surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ, and we're going to talk about just a few of these points. So first, in the agony of the garden, Luke tells us that Christ's sweat fell like drops of blood. Why is that fact important, and what does it tell us about Christ's passion and death?
1: Yeah, so it tells us a few things. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun fact about Luke. Colossians four fourteen mentions as an aside that St. Luke is a physician. And so it's striking and, and fitting that he should be aware of this kind of medical anomaly. Mm-hmm. Christ is sweating blood. And so he'd just be like, what is going on there? Yeah. Um, and it turns out there's actually a medical condition. Uh, hematohydrosis, I believe is what it's called. <laughs> and... There, it's, it's very rare, mm-hmm. and it's actually described in the Indian Journal of Dermatology as very rare, okay. but in extreme stress and anxiety, um, there's a small subset of the population that can actually uh, sweat so intensely that they're sweating blood. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It is, and, and so it's a detail that seems supernatural and sort of incredible, it's not the sort of thing one would ordinarily think to add to enhance the the credibility of the account. Right. So Luke's not trying to just depict an account where he's going to include only details people are going to readily believe. Mm-hmm. There are several points. We'll talk, I think, about the uh, the women being the first witnesses of the resurrection later. Mm-hmm. If you're going to lie, this is a bad set of witnesses to rely on because right. women were viewed as unreliable.
0: Yeah, like their, their witness wouldn't even stand up in court during their time.
1: Exactly. So... Luke's whole posture is just giving you the facts as he encounters them, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, what we heard in the last segment, like his whole intro to his Gospels. He's just trying to, just the facts. And clearly there's some theological significance he sees in in the Gospel account broadly. But he's not just saying, what are people likely going to believe? So he includes this detail that later, like centuries and centuries later, we're like, oh, okay, we actually think we get what's going on here medically. Right. In a way they wouldn't have gotten Mm-hmm. in the first century mm-hmm. so it, it points to the historicity of christ his agony in his garden in the garden mm-hmm. which is so inseparably connected from the crucifixion that if christ didn't really die on the cross then he didn't really have the agony in the garden mm-hmm. he didn't really sweat blood in anticipation of this right so the fact that that appears to be a medically confirmable diagnosis yeah in a way that wouldn't have been known to people in the first century Uh, that's a nice little nugget. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not the only um, gory medical detail that we encounter in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, he tells us that blood and water flow from Christ's side. And again, that's not an insignificant detail. So can you tell us a little bit about the meaning behind this part of Christ's time on the cross?
1: Yeah, so it's in John 19, Mm -hmm. uh, verse 31 to 37, for anyone who's interested in it. And it's packed with meaning. So I would say it's packed with meaning in a historical, theological, and scientific way. Okay. Historically, it tells us that the author, in the first century, is aware of Jewish ritual practices, which suggests that he is himself a Jew. Right. That he knows that the Passover is coming, mm-hmm. he knows that it's a day of preparation, and he understands why he can't just have a bunch of bodies mm-hmm. lying around out there. And yeah. so this is one of the reasons why they go to break the, the legs and to take down the bodies. Mm-hmm. He's also all too familiar with the crucifixion. Because the breaking of the legs causes asphyxiation right. in a way you wouldn't expect. I think when you first hear about the crucifixion, you imagine that it, it kills the person, I guess, through blood loss or something like this. Mm-hmm. No. The way that the Romans would pierce your hands and feet would put you in a position where it strained you and you suffocated on your own body. Right. And so it was like being hung, um, but by your hands. Yep. And so slowly, as you became too weak to hold your body up, mm-hmm. you would choke to death. So it's a very gory way. Well, you need your legs to support yourself to get air. Right. And so breaking the legs is the way that they would induce a quicker death Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you wouldn't be able, of course, right. To get yourself up there to take a breath. And so that's what happens with the other two who Mm -hmm. are crucified with Jesus, but they get to him, find that he's already dead and therefore don't break his legs. Right. John then ties this back uh, to the Passover because you don't break the legs of the Passover lamb. Yep. And so he shows a a deep familiarity with both Roman practice and Jewish practice. Right. uh, Which again, points to the historicity of this. It also leads. This is pretty naturally into a theological awareness mm-hmm. that he's showing how Christ is a fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Right. Um, so in Psalm 34, it talks about how the bones of the Messiah won't be broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Passover lamb, like I just said, in Exodus 12 and in Numbers 9, his limbs aren't to be broken either. Mm-hmm. And there's a strangely godlike prophecy in Zechariah 12:10. Uh, that the Chosen One will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, while they, quote, will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son, end quote. Mm-hmm. So the piercing of the sight of Christ has a deep theological signification. Mm-hmm. It also, in a way that it doesn't seem John could have known, has a deep scientific signification. So blood and water flow from the side of Christ. This is a sign, to us looking back on it, with medical eyes so Mm -hmm. to speak, Mm -hmm. that his body has stopped metabolizing water. And so water and blood are just sitting side by side Mm -hmm. inside of him, because his body isn't metabolized anymore. Death has truly occurred. Mm -hmm. This is one of the best markers for death, is the cessation of metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the fact that he the spear appears, so a, a spear comes in from the side of Christ mm-hmm. and tears through the lining of the stomach, apparently,
2: mm-hmm.
1: causing blood and water to flow out. That's a pretty medically precise description of what would happen in this situation. Right. There's also a whole layer of theology around it, tied to baptism and the Eucharist. Yep. So if you go back to Genesis, mm-hmm. Adam falls asleep, and right. from the side of Adam comes eve Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. taking a bone from the side of adam well christ who is his bride his bride is the church and so from the side of christ while he sleeps the sleep of death Mm -hmm. on the cross blood and water flow out representing baptism and the eucharist uh representing the sacraments that make the church the bride of christ the church
0: so, all of this, especially with the, the aspect of blood and water flowing from his side, really proved that Christ did die. He did die on the cross. And it's important to note, too, that the Romans weren't really known for messing up their crucifixions.
1: They were all too good at mm-hmm. it. I mean, they were notoriously good at it. They're actually, just on this same note, mm-hmm. in Psalm 22, there's this cryptic messianic prophecy of the Messiah being pierced in his hands and his feet. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good description of what happens in crucifixion. It's not really a good description of any other mode of execution. I mean, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to say, what's the other mode of execution that requires the the piercing of the hands and feet? Mm
2: -hmm. Well,
1: what's beautiful about that is that psalm is written about a thousand years before crucifixion is ever invented. And so we know the psalm predates crucifixion. Mm -hmm. We can read it, describe what appears to be crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And we know historically that the Romans... Ruthlessly used crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So, it, again, it shows this fascinating connection between these Jewish prophecies and what we know from Roman history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: We haven't even mentioned Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel describes water flowing from the side of the temple. Um, he describes this in, in verse 2 of chapter 47. He goes on the rest of the chapter to describe a miraculous water, um, the water that has the miraculous properties of turning salt water into fresh water. And then when you look at the New Testament and see how what if, where this is fulfilled, John chapter 2, in verse 19, Jesus calls himself the temple. And in John 2, verse 21, John goes on to describe and clarify how Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. The temple is his body. And so we see this during the crucifixion where water is flowing from the side of Christ. And it's a water that's going to be life-giving to the church as well. Part 4, Truly Risen. So we've talked about... Christ's agony in the garden, his time on the cross, he's died and now he's in the tomb. Uh, another detail that we know about the tomb of Christ is that it was guarded. So why is the fact that there were Roman guards in front of the tomb significant to the story of the resurrection?
1: Yeah know, significant for a couple of reasons. One of them is that it shows they don't have the wrong tomb mm-hmm. because there's a century posted out. Of it. So I, they already wouldn't have the wrong tomb since it's the personal tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. Uh, So he would know where his burial plot is. It also is like widely, they purposely crucify him in a very public visible place. Right. And he's buried nearby.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I've been to both Calvary and the empty tomb and and they are within the same large church at this point because they're, I mean, they're that close by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're not carting the body halfway across the country. So the idea that, they would have gotten the wrong spot. It's just unbelievable of itself, but especially given that there are Roman guards outside the tomb.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other reason that it's important, of course, is that it means the disciples aren't stealing the body. There's no account of some sort of battle. There's no account of you know anything like that. And then, I guess, a final reason is that it does point to the fact that the tomb's actually empty. Mm-hmm. They know where the tomb is. They know who's outside the tomb. And even the guards don't claim that the tomb is still occupied they don't claim jesus is still in there like here here's the body which would be super easy to prove right and their jobs would potentially hinge upon it yeah like you have to put yourself in the position of these roman guards their job is to guard a dead body Mm -hmm. and they've apparently screwed that up that's not going to look good on the resume so they would have every incentive for their life, perhaps for their job certainly to say no 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 here's the body and so in Matthew 28, um, verses 11 to 15, we actually get a little bit of that in the story where the, the guards report to the chief priests and explain what happened. And they devise this story that they had fallen asleep and the apostles had stolen the body at night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this story doesn't work very well because if they're asleep. How do they know the apostles stole the body? Right. But the story testifies to the reality that the tomb is clearly
0: empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, This reminds me when we were talking about this of a quote from Fulton Sheen. Uh, He says, quote, in the history of the world, only one tomb has ever had a rock rolled before it and a soldier guard set to watch it to prevent the dead man within from rising. And that was the tomb of Christ on the evening of Friday called good. What spectacle could be more ridiculous than armed soldiers keeping their eyes on a corpse? But centennials were set, lest the dead walk, the silent speak, and the pierced hands quicken at the throb of life. They said he was dead. They knew he was dead. And they said that he would not rise again. And yet they watched. They openly called him a deceiver. But would he still deceive? Would he who deceived them into believing they won the battle himself win the war for life and truth and love?
1: Yeah, beautifully put. It really does speak to the fact that many of the accounts against the resurrection, many of the accounts saying it was all a mistake or a, a hoax or any of these things have to suppose something. They usually, I think, just ignore the guards outside the tomb mm-hmm. or decide that all of the evangelists just make up this detail. Right. But if you don't just assume that they're lying about this, the evangelists, then, then you really have a huge problem. You can't say even that Christ like, passed out on the cross but mm-hmm. didn't really die. Because then, what, he wakes up, moves the stone away himself. Right. And the guards are just like, carry on, you know. (laughs) Go on,
0: buddy. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It
1: doesn't make sense. So a lot of the uh, counter-explanations for the resurrection fall apart Mm -hmm. once you're aware the guards are outside the tomb
0: right i think there's a significance to looking at the the state of the apostles as well like these are men who as we viewed in our line series like they couldn't even make it to the foot of the cross like and they're going to be the men who like take on a guard of roman soldiers to get to the dead body of christ like that doesn't make sense either
1: right i mean this would certainly be a death warrant you've Mm -hmm. attacked the roman government like you i mean remember that one of the reasons christ is executed is because they said he was a threat to caesar right Uh, using just like a misrepresentation of what he uh, taught about himself. Mm -hmm. Well, you go and attack the Roman army.
0: (laughs) Very blatantly. Right. That's not going to go
1: well for you. Mm -hmm. And you have to just look no further than first century Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And you'll see when the Jews did rise up against the Romans, they crushed them. Yeah. Did not go well. There's a reason the temple in Jerusalem isn't there
0: anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Christ rises from the dead. He visits the apostles. And not only does this meeting prove to the apostles that Christ isn't a ghost, but it also proves to us today that the resurrection wasn't a mass hallucination. So why is this instance the most important post-resurrection appearance of Christ, like from a logical standpoint?
1: So one of the common objections is that the apostles are all hallucinating. Mm -hmm. The women are all hallucinating. Mm -hmm. That all of these people who claim to have seen Christ, uh, they're just imagining, they're so grief-stricken, that Mm -hmm. there's a mass hallucination in a way we've never seen before in human history. Horses. yep. But in Luke twenty-four, uh, verses thirty-six to forty-three, Jesus stands before him and he says, "Peace be with you." Now they think he's a ghost originally. Right. Like that's their version of this kind of theory. Mm-hmm. Oh no, there's a ghost. <laughs> uh, but then he shows him his hands and his feet. Mm-hmm. He allows him to touch him, and he says, "Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have." And then he says, do you have anything here to eat? One of my favorite lines (laughs) in the Bible. I really relate to that line. Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish. Mm -hmm. And he eats it in their presence. Now, he's not just eating because he's, like, super hungry from having been in the tomb. (laughs) No, in eating, he shows that he's not a ghost. Right. In the same way, like, allowing them to touch him. Mm -hmm. So now if you're going to say it's a hallucination, you have to say it's some sort of hallucination that is both auditory and visible and tactile, meaning that you can touch this hallucination, and this hallucination can eat your fish.
0: (laughs) Likelihood's probably pretty slim. Right, like, at that
1: point, like, I might as well just conclude you're a hallucination. Right, right. Because you're just saying, everything I see and hear and touch and taste and smell, like, I just can't trust Mm -hmm. anything.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So it shows that he's not a ghost. It simultaneously shows that he's not a hallucination. And so you really are only left with a couple of choices here. Either the 12 are just flat out lying about this. And not just the 12, also the women, also all the other people who claim to have seen Christ. Or they really did see him. There's not really a middle ground uh, where he's able to appear in these rooms, able to be, you know, touched and to eat and all these things. But he's actually just, uh, you know, either hallucination or the other extreme. They didn't really die. He just pretended to die or maybe passed out and now has just acquired the ability to appear in locked rooms.
0: Right, right. And then to look at the consequences of the apostles, if they were, you know, spreading this lie or everyone hallucinated or that doesn't make sense to the consequences in their life, like every one of them, but John is martyred. And it doesn't make sense for all of them to go to the grave in an incredibly violent, awful death and still not one of them to break and say, no, don't kill me. It's all a lie. You got me. Sorry.
1: Yeah, this is I think one of the really underestimated parts. Mm-hmm. People regularly say, "Oh, well people will die for other religions." Right, mm-hmm. they will. Mm-hmm. And I presume that if they're dying for that other religion, they either truly believe in it, right, or didn't intentionally die but were, you know, seeking some sort of self-interest, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like if someone's willing to be martyred for a cause, it's a really good sign they actually believe in that cause. Right. That by itself doesn't mean the cause is true. Mm -hmm. But that, coupled with everything we've said up till now, that either the apostles are lying about what they saw, Mm -hmm. or it really happened, well, the fact they're willing to die for it seems to really strongly suggest it really did happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we haven't even talked about this part. These are pious Jews. Mm -hmm. Judaism is fiercely monotheistic. That's one of the reasons people are scandalized by Jesus. Okay. So imagine for a moment that Christianity is false and that the apostles apparently know it. They've been following this guy for three years, knowing he's a charlatan, knowing it's not true. And then they decide to make up resurrection appearances. And then they decide to go and proclaim those to live this radical lifestyle, a mendicant lifestyle uh, where they're not really getting any money, power or success or fame in any positive way, Mm -hmm. but are rejected by their own families They're scorned and hated by their co-religionists. They're hated by the Jews. They're hated by the Romans. They're hated by everyone they live with. They're then tortured and killed. And then what happens? They go to hell for eternity. Right. That's what they would have to believe. Yeah. So this is like, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm -mm. This is a go-to-hell-slowly-and-painfully scheme with no motive.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. It's a bizarre theory. Yep. And like, even if you could imagine one person being so warped and depraved... They thought this was a good idea. We're not talking about one or two people here. No. St. Paul mentions that there's a resurrection appearance to 500 people, some of whom are still alive at the time that he's writing this. Mm -hmm. I mean, he says it. Like, he offers, hey, there are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Are all of these people just on some bizarre, vast conspiracy? Or some vast hallucination? I mean, they're they're putting their lives, they're putting their Mm -hmm. salvation Mm -hmm. on the line for this. And so we have every reason to believe that's actually true.
0: So let's talk about what happens after the resurrection. Christ ascends to heaven. Um, there's the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles. Um, you know, the books of, we look at the books of the New Testament. They're historical documents. They recount very recent history. The documents are embraced as inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the Christian community, and they're ex- examined very rigorously, like you mentioned. And if the authors were just simply making up history, they'd be refuted immediately. And the movement just wouldn't have caught on. So one place in Scripture where we really see the apostles speaking of the resurrection is it after Pentecost, just fifty days after Christ um, rises from the dead. What does Saint Peter have to say, and why are his words important?
1: Yeah, so he gets up in the middle of Jerusalem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like you said, at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost we think of as a Christian holiday, right? Because where the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles. Mm-hmm. Pentecost is originally a Jewish holiday, and so the Jews would sometimes come to Jerusalem for this celebration. Mm-hmm. So you've got a uh, crowd of pilgrims from all over the place from all parts of the empire who have assembled in Jerusalem. And this guy Peter, stands up and proclaims to them that the guy he follows, Jesus Mm -hmm. is greater than King David, the greatest king in Jewish history. Right. And so the spot of the upper room where this is happening, where he stands Mm out, is adjacent to um, one of the sites believed to be the burial place of King David. Oh wow. So, and that's not like claimed by the Christians. That's claimed by the Jews. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is a Jewish spot there. I've been there as well. Um, there's a spot where they claim King David is buried. Mm-hmm. And so, if that's true, that really adds to this. Because yeah. Peter gets up and says, okay, this is Acts 2, 22-24. Mm-hmm. He says, you who are Israelites hear these words. Now, that's everyone right, right. Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man commended to you by God with mighty deeds, wonders, and signs, which God worked through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Mm -hmm. This man, delivered up by the set plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed, using lawless men to crucify him. But God raised him up, releasing him from the throes of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on and says, okay, verse 29, My brothers, one can confidently say to you about the patriarch David, that he died and was buried, mm-hmm. and his tomb is in our midst to this day. Now, it might literally have been in their midst, as in, like, within right, eyesight. Right, look
2: over and see it. Mm-hmm.
1: And going on in verse 32, he says, God raises Jesus. Of this, we are all witnesses. So he's saying, and he goes and he quotes the psalm, that God won't let his servants see destruction. Now, the psalm is written by David. And Peter's point is that that psalm is not about David, mm-hmm. because David's body is in the tomb. Right. And that Christ's body isn't in the tomb. Okay. Let's do a little bit of historical background here. Okay. Luke is writing probably no later than about 70
2: mm-hmm.
1: AD. So he can't just be making this speech up because he's talking about something that happened in the early to mid-30s in a very public spot at a very public time. Yep. Uh, and, he, you know, like, people were there. Mm-hmm. So if you just made up, like, let's say you just said, you know, at the inauguration, I gave this great speech before everyone... <laughs> People be like, no, you didn't. Uh, <laughs>
0: I was there. I was there,
1: right. Yep. Even if you said like 40 years ago at an inauguration. You know, like, you, right. this is a major event from which people come from all parts of the empire. Yep. He gets up and speaks to literally thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Acts 2 closes on the fact that 3,000
0: people convert. Right. So minimally 3,000 people are gathered.
1: If and Yeah, one... I mean, if, if 100% of people listening decided to convert, right. then you got 3,000. Yeah. That's a very big audience. Mm-hmm. And so Luke can't be making that up. No. The other reason we know Luke can't be making that up is because those people take Christianity back to where they are. So we find Christian communities before Paul gets there mm-hmm. in Rome, mm-hmm. before Peter gets there in Rome, and in all these other places, again, Acts 2, Luke mentions several of the places these people are from. They convert and bring Christianity back. Right. So if you're going to say this Acts 2 speech didn't happen, where are all of these Christians from all of these different places right. getting this idea that Jesus rose from the dead? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear, like, you have this major expansion of Christianity, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of location. Right. And it happens right here at this pivotal point with Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So the speech actually happens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just
1: implausible to say that it didn't. Right. Right. And in the speech, he's saying Christ truly rose. Mm-hmm. It's only 50 days, and it's walking distance from the tomb. Mm-hmm. So if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if the tomb is occupied, you take maybe an hour, you walk there, you say, oh, no, he's in there, and then Christianity's done.
0: Right, right. It never spreads. No one sees them as credible, and the apostles have no weight to their words either, because they're disproved easily.
1: Yeah, it would just be incredible. Like, if I said, hey, This bucket is empty, and you look in the bucket, and it's full. You're like, no, it's not. (laughs) It's (laughs) not empty. (laughs) So in the same way to say the empty tomb is empty.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it either is or isn't. Right. And we don't have anybody in the first century say, no, in fact, we found the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's a thing that I think is a glaring bit of um, kind of an absence of evidence on the other side. Right. If they're going to say, no, Christ really did remain in the tomb, find me one person in the first century. Who says? yeah, here he is. Mm -hmm. Because that'd be the easiest thing in the world to disprove this movement. This is a movement that's viewed as a threat to Judaism, Mm -hmm. viewed as a threat to the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people motivated to disprove it. And there are a lot of people who try, often just by killing everyone, but sometimes by, like, reasoning. Why aren't they showing um, that the tomb is, in fact, not empty?
0: So we find that the entire reason for Christianity the linchpin for Christianity and, and the truth behind it just centers and hinges on the resurrection of Christ. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19. He says, quote, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For if this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all men most to be pitied. So even Paul is basing his entire life, like, this is the reason that he has given up what he has, he goes and preaches the gospel, and if it's not true, then Christianity is stupid.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's saying, this really happened, this is historically true, Mm -hmm. he was someone who was a rising star in Judaism, Yep, he gave up all of that, because he has this encounter with the risen Christ, and he's saying, if I'm doing that just for, like, a myth, Mm -hmm. I'm both... Wicked because I'm lying about God. Right. And stupid to the point of pitiable because Mm -hmm. I'm just wasting my entire life. Yep. So, you know, if this is just a myth, this is just a story he really likes, Mm -hmm. this would be an inexplicable life. Like, if you just said, I love Twilight, (laughs) I love it so much, I'm gonna pretend it really happened. (laughs) And for some reason, you're like, I'm gonna get martyred for Twilight. (laughs) It's a dumb thing to do. It's really
0: stupid. Just
1: inexplicably yep. idiotic. Yep. So, either Christianity really did happen, was believed to have happened, mm-hmm. to the, I mean, because these are people who are in the know about whether it did or didn't really happen. Right. Like, this is not a situation where they could just be mistaken about this. Mm-hmm. So, they're either uh, lying, mm-hmm. telling a myth that they keep telling you isn't a myth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or telling the truth. And the only reasonable read of this is that they're telling the truth about it. I mean, I realize that's a, that's a big thing to accept. Mm-hmm. But given that the alternatives are just ridiculous, it seems like the most logical conclusion to the facts. Mm-hmm.
0: Joe, if you were to sum up today's episode in one sentence, what would it be?
1: Christ truly lived, truly died, and truly rose again. And that's what our faith is all about. That's what it is to be Catholic.
0: Beautiful. So join us next week. We will be talking about the Divine Mercy image and celebrating Divine Mercy Sunday on a Monday, just a little bit late. So let's close today's episode in a prayer.
1: Glory be to the Father, and, and to the, the Son, Son, and to the, the Holy, Spirit. Holy Spirit, as, as it was, was in the, the beginning,
0: is now, now and ever shall be, world without end. end. Amen. In the name of the Father,
1: and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.